You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I'm discussing the disappearance of Jason Landry. Around 2 a.m. in the early hours of December 14, 2020, Kent Landry received a call from a Texas state trooper. It was a call every parent dreads. His 21-year-old son Jason had gotten into a car crash on his drive home for Christmas break. The trooper reported that Jason's car had been found abandoned on a gravel road in rural Luling, which was only about 30 minutes into his three-hour drive back home. The car's lights were still on, the keys were in the ignition, and the passenger side door was still locked but Jason was nowhere to be found. It was pretty obvious that he'd fled the scene of a wreck, but according to Kent, that just didn't sound like something his son would do. Kent rushed to the scene. When he got there, he saw that Jason's clothes were scattered all over the road, not far from where he'd wrecked. At this point, it became obvious to him that Jason didn't just flee the scene. Something had happened, and no one looked into it. This is the case of Jason Landry. On July 29, 1999, Jason David Landry was born to his parents Lisa and Kent, who already had two other children, a son and a daughter. Jason completed the family. Now, it seems like the Landrys are an extremely close, tight-knit group. 
If you look at the Find Jason Landry Facebook page, you'll find a ton of photos of the family out to dinner, on vacation, and more. Through photos, it seems clear that the three Landry children had a great time growing up in Missouri City, Texas, which is right outside of Houston. They rode bikes, played baseball, went horseback riding, and attended a camp every year that they really seemed to enjoy. This was Camp Choya, a Christian camp north of Houston, and it played a vital role in the Landry children's lives. They went every year. It was kind of like a rite of passage. Campers who attend for five years receive a cross necklace. After Jason was awarded his necklace, he wore it all the time. And when he started driving, he hung it from the rearview mirror of his vehicle. It remained there until his disappearance. By the time Jason was a teenager, he was known for his loving, joyful, and positive nature. With those qualities, it may come as no surprise that Jason was wonderful with children. His father Kent said, quote, He always made sure that even the younger members of any group felt like they were part of the fun. Jason was also known for his obsession with these crazy socks. Apparently, his favorite pair was called Monkey Business. The socks have a monkey in a suit and tie, and he's like holding a briefcase in one hand and a banana in the other. It's a small detail, but it seems like Jason is that person who just takes joy in even the smallest parts of life, and I think that's kind of beautiful. But because of Jason's happy nature, he kind of surprised everyone with his affinity for horror movies. The scarier, the better, according to Kent. In 2018, Jason went to go see The Nun in theaters with a good friend. As they walked in the parking lot, Jason and his friend recorded themselves reviewing the movie. I really do think that this video captures Jason's personality, so I want to play the audio for you. Alright, so we just saw the nun. She's freaking out right now. It's 10 out of 10. <laughs> wonderful crying. movie. No, it was you're a wonderful crying. comedy. I, I was laughing the entire time. <laughs> That's a lie. She was the one crying. She was terrified, but it was funny. It was a wonderful comedy. In the fall of 2020, two years after that video was recorded, 21-year-old Jason moved to San Marcos in Central Texas so he could study sound recording at Texas State University. This now put Jason three hours away from home, which meant he could really only make it back during longer breaks from school. But the time between visits went really fast because Jason was extremely busy adjusting to his new school and apartment. And on top of that, he was applying for the university's prestigious sound recording technology program. Kent would later share on Facebook that as a part of the application process, he had to make a video basically introducing himself to the professors at the music school. He explains that they actually found a bunch of practice attempts on Jason's phone, and it just made them smile. So here's the audio from one of those videos. Hello, my name is Jason Landry, and I'm currently a sophomore at Texas State. I've been interested in joining the Sound Recording Technology program here since my senior year of high school. After visiting, after... Finally, the time had come and Jason had a few days off school and went home for Thanksgiving break. It was a short visit, but he'd be back in just a few weeks after finals. Lisa and Kent were really looking forward to this visit because all three of their kids would be home for the holiday and New Year break. By Sunday, December 13th, Jason had finished all his finals. All he needed to do now was pack and make the three-hour drive home. He planned on leaving around 8.30 p.m., but got caught up talking with some friends. According to one of these friends, whom I haven't seen named, the plan was that before going to his parents' house, he would head to this friend's house to hang out and smoke some weed. He also FaceTimed with this friend about an hour before leaving his apartment. 
This call was screen recorded by the friend because according to his statements to police, he thought Jason was so, quote, messed up that he didn't think he was going to remember the call later. Unfortunately, the 38-minute long video doesn't have any sound, and police were never able to recover that sound. But it does clearly show Jason rolling some joints and putting them into an empty prescription pill bottle. According to the friend, he and Jason were discussing things like spiritual awakenings, opening the third eye, and drugs. It's also important to note that Jason seemed to be very warm and was sweating a lot. But after about an hour, Jason wraps up the conversation and gets ready to drive back to his hometown. Before leaving his apartment, Jason grabbed a backpack and filled it with a bunch of stuff he'd need for his trip, including his laptop, toiletries, and even his betta fish. At 10.55pm, Jason opened the Waze navigation app and typed in the directions to Missouri City. He then left his San Marcos apartment and headed south on Highway 80. About 30 minutes later, at 11.24, Jason entered the city of Luling, a small town of around 6,000 people. As Jason drove through the intersection of Hackberry Street, where Highway 80 becomes Austin Street, he received a Snapchat from his ex-girlfriend, whom he was still on good terms. While continuing on Austin Street to the intersection of Highway 83, Jason exited the Waze app and opened up Snapchat. This is the last known location of Jason Landry. It is believed that Jason continued east on Austin Street to Spruce Street. Pretty quickly, Spruce turns into Salt Flat Road, which winds through rural Caldwell County. The road is paved for the first three miles, but then it turns into gravel. Just over an hour after Jason made it to Spruce, his vehicle was found around two miles away from the pavement in the gravel section of Salt Flat Road. At 12.31 a.m. on what was now December 14th, a volunteer firefighter came across Jason's gray Nissan Altima. It had been wrecked into some trees on the east side of the road. The car's lights were on, the keys were in the ignition, and the passenger door was locked, but Jason was nowhere to be found. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The firefighter who found Jason's car called the police, but it took nearly an hour for a trooper to arrive. After assessing the scene, the trooper believed that the accident was a single vehicle collision, most likely from overcorrecting on the gravel road and spinning off the roadway. It looked like the rear driver's side corner initially made contact with a tree on the east side of the roadway, then propelled the front driver's side into another tree and a barbed wire fence. The back window was broken because of the impact with a tree. Branches and glass were in the back seat. The trooper did look for Jason in the immediate area. 
In the road about 900 feet from the collision scene, the trooper found some of Jason's belongings. A ball cap, a plastic bag of personal toiletries, and a tumbler with his now-deceased beta fish in it. He also found Jason's backpack. In the backpack was his wallet, the medicine bottle with joints in it, a laptop, gaming equipment, and a few more personal items. After looking over everything, the trooper assumed Jason was most likely a drunk driver who fled the scene. So there wasn't really a search for Jason that night, and his car was towed to an impound yard. At around 2am, the trooper called Jason's father Kent to report what he'd found. Kent later told Dateline, quote, It's a call that every parent fears. It's her worst nightmare. To know that our son is out there hurting and we can't fix it. But not knowing where he is or if he's okay, it's confusing and heartbreaking. And the thing is, the Landrys were surprised to get the call from the trooper. They didn't know Jason was driving into town that night. They did know that he planned on coming home when finals were over, but they never knew exactly what day he decided on. After getting off the phone with the trooper, Kent left the house and went looking for Jason himself. Lisa stayed at home in case Jason showed up there. Kent got to the area around 5 a.m. For an hour, Kent drove around looking for the wreck site, but he was unable to find it, so he called Lisa and asked her to get the exact location from the trooper. After Lisa sent the address, Kent made his way to Salt Flat Road. He later described the road to CBS. Quote, There are no lights out here. It's cows and oil, grasshoppers and a few scattered homes, and it's very dark. There's also a lot of wildlife. Numerous deer and a coyote darted in front of Kent's car as he drove down the road. As Kent got to the site, he was pretty surprised to find that no one was there. There wasn't a single officer searching for Jason. Kent kept driving along, and when he got within 900 feet of the collision scene, he saw a shirt, shorts, socks, underwear, and slide sandals strewn across the road. And when Kent got closer, he noticed that the clothes were Jason's. Kent would later learn that the clothes were located just south of where Jason's backpack had been picked up by the trooper. These items were found on the drive back toward Luling, so it's unclear how they weren't noticed by the trooper and or the tow truck driver. So Kent gets out of his car and starts picking up his son's clothes. Police and Jason's family would later confirm that these were most likely the clothes he was wearing during the crash, because they were the same clothes he was wearing in photos and video taken before he left his apartment that night. Now, there's something interesting I think we need to talk about here. When Kent lifted up Jason's Camp Choya t-shirt, he found Jason's watch laying face up, completely flat on the ground, as if it had been carefully placed there as opposed to, like, flinging off his wrist. Kent put the clothes in his car and kept driving. He was looking for tire tracks, hoping to see where Jason had lost control of his car. It wasn't long before Kent found two sets of tire tracks. Because the scene was never preserved, it can only be assumed that one set belonged to Jason and the other set belonged to the tow truck driver. But we do know that the police assume no other vehicle was involved in the accident. Kent followed the tracks and found a damaged tree with pieces of a car scattered around the base. He tried his best to search the area for Jason, but it was still dark out. There wasn't much more Kent could do at this point, so he used an app on his phone to track the location of Jason's phone. Luckily, he got a hit. The phone was actually still inside of Jason's car, which was now at the impound lot. Kent drove there and found Jason's phone in between the driver's seat and the center console, almost all the way down at the bottom rail. We don't know if Jason dropped his phone before, during, or after the crash. Before Kent left the impound lot, 
he made sure to grab Jason's cross necklace from around the rearview mirror. And Kent was on it. Next, he went to the trooper's office and gave them Jason's clothes and cell phone. Now, once the troopers find out that Jason had taken off his clothing, the police began to explore the possibility that maybe Jason suffered a concussion in the crash. During the wreck, the car had gone sideways, striking trees on the driver's side. Jason's Ultima was an older model, and there were no side impact airbags. Jason could have hit his head on the driver's side door pillar, leading to a concussion. Obviously, I am not a doctor, but according to the CDC, concussions can cause an array of disorienting symptoms, including balance issues and dizziness, double or blurry vision, confusion, and more. If Jason did have a concussion after the crash, maybe he had been experiencing one or all of these symptoms and more. And of course, coupled with the information from his friend about Jason possibly being intoxicated, it just isn't good. And it's important to note that that night was a really cold one for Texas. The low came in at just 36 degrees Fahrenheit, with a high of 43 degrees. These temperatures led to concerns of hypothermia, which can set in in temperatures in the 40s. The CDC states that hypothermia affects the brain, making the victim unable to think clearly or move well. A person may not know what's happening to them, and they won't be able to do anything about it. Further, many victims of hypothermia suffer from paradoxical undressing. Basically, paradoxical undressing means that despite how cold it is, a victim may remove their clothes due to suddenly feeling really, really hot. Since the clothes Jason was assumed to be wearing during the crash were found in the road, hypothermia seemed plausible. And of course, we know that Jason seemed extremely hot during his FaceTime call with his friend. So if it wasn't paradoxical undressing due to hypothermia, Jason may have taken off his clothes due to being very hot from whatever substance he may have been on. Once it became pretty clear that Jason wasn't just fleeing the scene of a crash, a major search for him began. Multiple law enforcement agencies and groups like Texas EquiSearch and Texas Search and Rescue joined in. Landowners in the area also helped search teams search their land. According to a statement from Texas EquiSearch, for nine days straight, these teams searched for Jason. Quote, in every accessible, reasonable, and practical place that he might be. They used a helicopter with infrared cameras, drones, side-scan sonar artificial intelligence, and other geospatial tools. There were scent dogs, there were searchers on foot, people on ATVs, and horseback. Unfortunately, they didn't find Jason. But on two occasions, dogs did pick up his scent near the crash site. At one time, they tracked him to a cattle guard. The other time, the scent led to a pond. This pond was drained, but there was no sign of Jason in the pond or anywhere else. Meanwhile, investigators pulled video from cameras in and around Luling, hoping to find something. But they didn't find anything of value. Jason's car and his clothes were examined. There was no blood found inside of Jason's Ultima. But two spots of blood were found on his clothing. One on the tag of his shorts and one on the waistband of his underwear. The spots were small, and were most likely from the barbed wire fence he wrecked into. Jason's car had come to a stop with the driver's side door up against the fence. When he got out of his car, Jason most likely had to shimmy along this fence to get free. It seems very possible that he got poked by the fence and it drew blood. Now, let's go back to Jason's phone. 
Jason's phone had a signal and was powered on before and after the wreck. However, the phone hadn't been used since Jason exited the Waze app and opened up Snapchat at the intersection of Austin and Highway 183. We don't know why Jason didn't use his phone before the crash. One theory is that he dropped his phone at that point and couldn't get to it since it was way down at the bottom rail. So he just continued on his route without GPS, assuming he knew how to get there. Or that he planned to stop later to retrieve the phone and turn back on GPS. As for why Jason didn't take his phone with him after the crash, well, that's also really hard to say. But I think him stripping off his clothes, no matter why he did it, tells us that he clearly was not thinking straight. By mid-January, investigators had put enough information together to release a statement about Jason's disappearance. They said so far, there was just no evidence that a crime had been committed. Their focus was the 67-minute window between Jason driving through the intersection at Austin and Highway 183 and the discovery of the crash scene. Investigators said they don't believe Jason stopped his car, or spoke to anyone during that time. This does rule out the theory, at least to investigators, that there's anyone who could have killed Jason, disposed of his body, and driven his car to Salt Flat Road. There was no other evidence that any other vehicle or outside force was involved in the collision. All the evidence collected led investigators to believe that the contact with the trees and fence line was the only contact the vehicle sustained. The statement also brought up the marijuana found in Jason's backpack. There had been a lot of talk about this after a media outlet falsely reported that Jason's backpack was filled with narcotics. Investigators did clear up the report by stating once and for all that the backpack had not been filled with narcotics. The truth was, there were some joints in there that were obviously for personal use. Investigators did state that there's a possibility that the marijuana was laced with an unknown hallucinogenic substance. They sent the joints off for testing, but I wasn't able to find an update on those results. The statement also said that Jason's father, mother, and family members had been extremely helpful. Jason's ex-girlfriend, who resides out of state, has also been fully cooperative in assisting investigators. Investigators said, quote, Their cooperation has been essential and appreciated. They are not suspects or persons of interest, and are not believed to be withholding any information. After they released this statement, investigators set out to look at everything with fresh eyes. They pinpointed specific areas that needed further examination, and teams were deployed to search those areas. Still, there was no sign of Jason. During this time, Kent spoke with a ton of media outlets in hopes of garnering attention for Jason's disappearance. In February 2021, he went on the YouTube show Lord and Arts. Kent said the family's biggest frustration with the investigation was that the trooper didn't really collect any evidence, or even search for Jason at the beginning. He said this just really started the case on a bad foot. With that being said, it does seem like the family has a good relationship with law enforcement. They just wish things had been handled differently. Another main frustration stemmed from the media's false reporting on the marijuana. Kent explained to Lord and Arts that at one point early on in the investigation, a news outlet filed a FOIA, and they received an evidence sheet for all the items recovered at the scene of the accident. One piece of evidence read, quote, backpack with narcotics. And of course, we know that that ended up being a news story about how the backpack was filled with narcotics, which just isn't the truth. Not only was this extremely upsetting to Jason's loved ones, it also ended up turning the case in a different direction. 
Instead of focusing on Jason being a missing person, people started theorizing that he was a drug dealer who drove out to a rural area to make a deal, and that deal had gone terribly wrong. People started analyzing the photos Jason took about an hour before he left his apartment. Jason's hair was shaggy and he had a goatee. So to some people, that obviously meant that he was a drug dealer, which has to be one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in true crime. Although all of this is ridiculous and it's not something I want to entertain, this topic is important to talk about. And while I am going to talk about this again later in the episode because it is so important, I just want to say right now that the reason this false reporting is so harmful is because some people just don't care about things that happen to specific groups of people, including drug dealers or users. It's easy for them to write these people off as not mattering. They hear the word drugs and they move right along. They're no longer interested in finding the person. That kind of attitude is detrimental to these cases. Now, while on Lord and Arts, Kent addressed his son's marijuana usage. He says he wishes Jason never used marijuana, and admits that he himself is not perfect, and that he knows a large percentage of college students do dabble in marijuana use. Not only that, I do want to mention that marijuana use in the U.S. has now officially surpassed the number of people who smoke cigarettes. That's how common it is. With all of that being said, Kent wishes people wouldn't focus on the marijuana. He obviously realizes that it's a part of the case, but it's not the part that matters. And he really does need everyone to focus on the part that does matter, the fact that Jason is still out there missing. I do want to state that obviously it's never a good idea to drive while intoxicated. It's not smart and it's not okay. But whether Jason was drunk, high, or anything else when he crashed the vehicle doesn't mean people shouldn't care that he's missing. Obviously, something terrible happened that night, and Jason deserves to be found just like anybody else. He's a college kid who made a mistake. Either way, of course, the investigation into Jason's disappearance continued. Billboards were put up and prayer vigils were held. In October 2021, Kent spoke with News Nation about what he misses most about Jason. What do you miss about seeing your kids? I mean, that's, that's the hard part is when you're left with that you may never see him again, what's the first part you miss? The, the hugs, the talks, the, all the different things that go into life. It's, you know, I mean, we're Thanksgiving's around the corner and it's it's no fun. I mean, every you know every family's been through loss, but something like this, when a there's it's kind of like the elephant in the room. You know, there's someone not there, and it it's hard every day. And and it's also just kind of the the little things. You know, um, semesters ending, college. Everybody else's college students are coming home, but not ours. Before the year was over, Abel Pena, a former FBI agent who also founded Project Absentis, started working for the Landry family pro bono. According to the University Star, Project Absentis is, quote, a nonprofit organization that works to assist and support law enforcement agencies in their investigation. The project deems itself as the bridge between the family of the missing and the officials that work diligently on cases. In December 2021, Pena spoke with News Nation about what he believes happened to Jason. After interviewing multiple people, sifting through a lot of tips, and analyzing the search data, 
Pena does not believe Jason was alone on the night of his disappearance. He believes a second or third party was involved in Jason's crash. He believes Jason could have been talking to someone at the intersection where he missed his turn for I-10. Because Jason had traveled that route before, Pena theorized, quote, that something happened at the intersection that caused him to go down that road that night. Or perhaps he was not driving the car that night, and someone else may have been driving the car. In order to prove this theory, Pena said he was hoping the DA's office would obtain a warrant for a data dump from a nearby cell tower. Pena says he and his team want to look at the data to see who was in the area at the time of the crash. The DA's office has been apprehensive to file such a warrant. They have stated that without any evidence of a crime occurring, it can be really difficult to obtain warrants like this because they violate privacy rights. Three months later, in February 2022, Caldwell County Sheriff Captain Jeff Ferry spoke with KPRC2 Investigates. He refuted Pena's theory, stating, quote, There is no evidence of a crime. Ferry gave a theory of his own. He says that Jason was driving under the influence when he took a wrong turn and crashed his car. He exited, stripped off his clothes, and wandered into the near-freezing temperatures. Jason died and was later eaten by wild hogs. When asked about his thoughts on this theory, Kent says he thinks it's easier for investigators to blame everything on Jason. It was Jason who got into the crash. Jason who exited the car. Jason who died by hypothermia. By thinking this way, investigators didn't have to admit that they failed to look for Jason right after the crash. During the following month, March 2022, Texas Search and Rescue combed through a 100-acre field looking for Jason, but they found nothing new. By this point, 57 square miles had been searched via the ground, 382 square miles had been searched from the air, and more than 36,000 drone images had been captured and analyzed. There was no sign of Jason anywhere. In July 2022, Kent received an influx of tips that Jason may have been found in New York. The NYPD had asked for the public's help in identifying a young man who had been found unconscious and unresponsive. Five days later, the man remained unconscious in the hospital. He didn't have any ID on him. So the NYPD released a photo of the man and asked for the public's help in identifying him. This man looked quite a bit like Jason. And for a moment, there was hope that it was really him. I mean, this picture was absolutely everywhere. And many people believed that the case had finally been solved. The man was eventually identified, but it wasn't Jason. Kent told Fox 7 News that while he was sad the man wasn't Jason, he was thankful Jason's name and story had gotten out there in the news cycle again. Kent said, quote, the picture's gotten out there to a whole lot of people who had never heard of Jason. So who knows what God does with that? You know, all it takes is one person who says, oh, I remember. I didn't know about this, but I remember seeing something. It just takes one person to come forward to break the whole case open. So maybe that's what happened today. As for other theories about Jason, some people do believe that it's possible he left intentionally. While I don't personally think that theory is strong, I do think it's only fair to discuss why people think this might be the case. Remember Jason's FaceTime call with his friend, where they were talking about spiritual awakenings and opening the third eye? Well, investigators found Google searches that prove that this conversation wasn't just a one-off thing. According to Captain Ferry, quote, 
Jason is Googling how long can you live in the woods without food, and how long can you go in the wilderness. He's looking up some spiritual enlightenment practices. He's looking up different strains of marijuana and how to combine those. He's talking about psychedelics and how they have impacted his life and his perception of spiritual awakening. There are communications with individuals where he talks about his intent of reaching this spiritual enlightenment through the use of narcotics. So does that play a factor into his disappearance? We think so. You guys, here's the thing. I don't know what happened to Jason Landry, but I don't think a kid in college experimenting with drugs or the idea of leaving behind society for some type of spiritual awakening is that crazy. Could drugs have played a role in the crash? Absolutely. Does Jason exploring these things mean he absolutely left his life behind and we shouldn't be looking for him? No, it doesn't. Even if Jason wanted to leave his life behind and go live in the woods, there's no reason to believe he would do this without telling anyone. And according to his friend, Jason was literally on his way to go see him. He had plans. I understand why Jason's family doesn't appreciate the heavy focus there's been on his drug use. Because to be very frank, it often makes the police and public care less about a missing person. I can tell you that by my download numbers. Anytime I cover a case of a missing or murdered person and there's drugs involved, I see a dip in listenership. I see a dip in downloads. It just is what it is. So it's easy to understand why his family doesn't enjoy the focus on this aspect of Jason's case. And I think that's really important to talk about. If we could get an honest survey of how many humans, let alone college kids, discuss these ideas or experiment with drugs, I'd imagine it would be a very high percentage. The idea that these people aren't worth looking for is, in my opinion, insanely dangerous. I think it's pretty common knowledge that a lot of people use marijuana, but just to prove my point, I did look it up. And according to an article from Gallup, 49% of U.S. adults have tried marijuana, nearly half of the U.S. adult population. And that's just adults. Police officers, firefighters, politicians, teachers, nurses, preachers, mothers, fathers, children, grandparents, all of these humans have tried marijuana. So I just don't buy into the idea that using marijuana or really any other substance means you don't deserve to be looked for if you go missing. We have to ask ourselves, why do victims or the missing need to achieve some level of perfection to be focused on? To be looked for? What makes someone worthy of being searched for after they go missing? Do they need to be of a certain income level or race? Can they have never experimented with drugs? Never discuss the idea that there's more to life than college and a 9-to-5 job? What makes a missing person worthy of being looked for? In my opinion, it's being a missing human being. Someone who is not where they're supposed to be. That's it. Which brings me right to our call to action. Jason David Landry is still missing, and his family is desperate for answers. Please share his story. And if you'd like to go above and beyond and just offer support for his family, please go follow the Find Jason Landry Facebook page. As a reminder, Jason Landry went missing sometime between December 13th and 12.30 a.m. on December 14th, 2020. His vehicle was recovered near Luling, Texas. Jason is white. He's six foot one, 170 pounds, with brown eyes, shaggy brown hair, and a goatee. He sometimes wears glasses, but it is presumed that he was wearing contacts during the crash. 
As of recording this episode, he would now be 23 years old. Anyone with information is asked to call Captain Jeff Ferry at 512-398-6777, extension 4516. If you'd rather remain anonymous, you can call 726-777-1359. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney, and is a Voices for Justice media original. This episode contains writing and research assistance by Haley Gray, and fact-checking by Lena Gugaluk. If you love what we do here, please take a moment to follow, rate, and review the show in your podcast player. It is an easy and free way to help us and help more people find these cases in need of justice. For even more content, or if you just want to support the show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash voicesforjustice. And of course, I'd love if you checked out my other podcast, Disappearances, only on Spotify. 